Hey, Cheat listeners, we got a new season of your favorite podcast that'll be coming out August 9th. So while we're tracking down the latest scammers, schemers, slicksters, and tricksters, we're letting our loyal listeners revisit their favorite Cheat episodes. So listen up and enjoy. Hi, my name is India, and my favorite episode is Hook, Wine, and Sinker. I'm just so fascinated by wine connoisseurs and where these people live. So to hear about this scammer that is kind of playing a prank and pulling the leg of people who totally buy into this world and think it is the absolute, you know, creme de la creme of, of aristocracy and of culture is really funny. You're just gonna like enjoy your next 30 minutes and, and just enjoy listening to this hilarious man, Rudy, who, you know, God bless him. It's six o'clock in the morning in Arcadia, California. Maureen Downey's waiting. She spent years building a case against one man, a scam artist, and it's all led up to this moment. The FBI are closing in on a house with a Lamborghini, a Mercedes-Benz, and a Range Rover parked outside. They thought they were going to go out and then have to kind of pull out of him, you know, what he did and where he did it. They knock and announce themselves. They opened up the door. A guy opens the door in his pajamas. His mother is right behind him, and the FBI agents were in utter disbelief. All the windows in the house were covered with foil, and the house itself was very cool. Wine cellar temperature. Wine cellar temperature? You see, that's a relevant detail because the man Maureen had been chasing wasn't just your regular two-bit scam artist. No, this guy, he single-handedly carried out one of the craziest wine frauds in history. And now here he was, standing in his pajamas with the evidence of his crime all around him. He actually had a note to himself that said, blend wine, cork bottle, make labels. He would batch produce this stuff. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a new series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest cheating scandals in history. In popular culture, in sport, in finance, no stone left unturned. Some stories you may have heard about, and plenty others you won't have. We'll talk to the people involved, meet the cheats, and each week we'll attempt to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we're going back just a few years to find out how a 26-year-old regular dude pulled the wool over the eyes of some of the most respected wine experts in the world. Yeah, we're talking about wine, that fermented elixir that's been enjoyed the world over. Some folks drink the cheap stuff, and others, they might even fork out a lot of money for a fancy bottle every once in a while. But in 2004, someone came along and changed the way the world thought about this expensive old grape juice. His big spending and big drinking helped move the fine wine collecting world from being a stuffy place of old white men in leather-bound smoking rooms to a symbol of capitalism, partying like Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. You see, the only problem was, it turns out this one guy, this guy who single-handedly changed the world of wine, was at the very same time 
carrying out the biggest con the wine world, or pretty much any world, has ever seen. Let's head back to 2003. Something bizarre was happening in the wine community, and journalist Corey Brown was looking for a story. I had just changed beats at the LA Times and was just starting to cover wine. I am not a wine expert. I only drank recreationally. This was my first foray into drinking professionally. Drinking professionally? Like, people get paid to get sippy and trippy? That doesn't sound like a normal job to me. But just like most things, the best way to learn is on the job. So Corey decided to do what all good journalists do and head to the center of the action. I didn't know anything about old wine, so I went to an auction at Christie's in Beverly Hills on a Saturday afternoon. Auctioning wine in Beverly Hills? Sounds like a party, huh? Yeah, not so much. It was very silent, very quiet, very subdued, not a lot of drinking. But there was one thing that stood out. Actually, not a thing, but a person. And it was impossible to not notice Rudy. He was on the front row with his very pretty girlfriend and a couple of Hollywood movie producers. There was just something about this dude, Rudy. Rudy was decades younger than everyone else. We're talking like mid-30s here, young. And he was also not a white dude. Rudy was ethnically Chinese, born in Indonesia. Rudy had a his baby face, black frame glasses, dark, I wouldn't say slicked back, but, you know, sort of styled, thick hair. Rudy was kind of smooth. He wore big, trendy glasses and smart suits. He was cool looking. And it wasn't just his look that was different. It was also his attitude to the wine itself. You see, most people in the old wine world... They're spending an enormous amount of money on something that they probably aren't going to drink. But Rudy was the opposite. He shared his wine with everyone. He had gigantic Bacchanalia events that people paid tons of money to attend because nobody had ever tasted the kinds of wines he was opening. Rudy was part of the Angry Men's Club. This was a group of very wealthy wine collectors who felt enraged when people cheaped out on the wine they brought to dinner. So these dudes started their own elite group, only expensive fine wine and men allowed. They even had nicknames for each other, Mr. Angry, Hollywood Jeff, and Big Boy. They met eight times a year and would take turns to host dinners, sometimes drinking $200,000 worth of wine in one night. Empty glasses stacked up on the table next to plates of lobster. It was excessive, and Rudy was at the center of it. And actually, he was the guy they went to if they wanted expensive wine. Because Rudy wasn't just a buyer of wine, he also sold it. And most of the people who bought it were the angry men. Rudy was their hero. And so Corey, the journalist, was intrigued. She saw this guy, handsome, young, the leader of this new world of fine wine. And she knew, this is my story. 
After a bit of back and forth, finally Rudy agreed to meet her. But in true Hollywood style, it was Rudy's dog who made him late. His dog had been ill. His dog had diarrhea. He had to rush him to the vet. And then he opened his jacket, and in the inside pocket was this miniature chihuahua. All I could think of is, I hope the dog has a diaper on. Then he took his water glass and gave the little baby dog a sip out of his water glass. Once the chihuahua fiasco had been addressed, Corey started asking questions. Who are you? And why are you spending money like this on old wine? What do you see at this old wine market that other people haven't seen before you? He was doing something no one had ever done before. No one had ever seen somebody come into that old wine market and start spending so much money so fast. But Rudy didn't really want to talk about himself. He wouldn't talk about his family. Wouldn't talk about the money. He just wanted to talk about the wine and the parties. But you paid to go to some of them. I mean, he did these weekend-long affairs with multiple extraordinary meals and tons of great wine. The food, the wine, the people, the parties. It was almost too good to be true. He was charming. He was lovely. He was endlessly kind. He was very soft-spoken, but he loved to laugh. He was a happy guy. And he was very, very generous. And people didn't just like Rudy because he gave them expensive wine. They also marveled at how much he knew. Alan Meadows is one of the uh, top wine critics in Burgundy. There's really very few people that know more about Burgundy than Alan, and he was completely smitten with Rudy. After her lunch with Rudy, Corey went off and published the story. And then a few years later, in April of 2008, she caught wind of a huge auction that was taking place in a restaurant in Manhattan. Mega-rich people from around the world flying in for a chance to get their hands on rare champagnes and wines including 268 bottles sold by Rudy himself. Everyone was buzzing for the auction. Millions of dollars worth of wine was going to be sold. Not a broke person in the room. These rich people gathered at round tables, eating their lavish lunches, and all eyes were on the auctioneer. He was had a glass of wine in his hand all the way through. He banged his gavel as two bottles of rosé that had once belonged to the Shah of Iran were sold for a record-breaking $42,350 each. These rich folks were forking out thousands of dollars. They were all hyped up, maybe even a little drunk, and they were ready for the main event, Rudy's Wines. Then suddenly, a man stood up at the back of the auction. Everyone fell silent. You must remove my wine from this auction. That's coming up after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the darkness appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, 
And this is the price of paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow the price of paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. I was born just above a cellar in Burgundy, in the family house. And my father was a winemaker. My family has owned vineyards for uh, many, many generations. And so it was easy for me to become a winemaker because I have some blood in my wine, not the contrary. If an expensive wine bottle was a human being, it would be this guy, Laurent Ponceau, the mysterious man who stood up at the wine auction and demanded his wines be withdrawn. Uh, my name is Detective uh, Ponceau. <laughs> Laurent might be a part-time detective, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first and foremost, he's a lover of wine. Wine appeared on the planet 8,000 years ago, and since people loved wine because it makes you stronger, make you smile, make you happy, make you uh, drunk and, and in love with everyone. In 2008, Laurent was in charge of De Mont-Ponceau, a family business based in Burgundy. Burgundy is known for producing some of the finest wines in the world. And then Laurent got an email that would change the course of his life for the next four years, transforming him from a wine aficionado into a detective. I was on my chair, otherwise I would have fallen down. <laughs> no, really, it was a shock. It was the morning of April 23rd, and Laurent was at his computer. Uh, a friend of mine from New York sent me an, an email uh, asking, since when do you produce Clos Saint-Denis, which is a Grand Cru as well? Clos Saint-Denis is a wine made from Pinot Noir grapes in Burgundy. It's the best of the best, and there aren't many bottles out there. So a lot of people would do almost anything for a sip. I sent him an email uh, asking, why are you asking this, <laughs> this question? His friend replied that he was looking through the catalog for a big auction coming up, and he noticed something odd. He told me that two days later, he had a, an auction in New York with this particular appellation from the 40s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. There was just one problem. We started this in 1982. Laurent's family weren't making this kind of wine in 1982. It just didn't exist. Laurent started hunting through the catalog, and what he found was shocking. Almost 100 bottles of uh, old Domaine Ponceau wines were on, on sale. And the total was estimated for uh, a bit more than $1 million. So that was crazy. Laurent called the auctioneer and he said, there's no way these wines can be real. I tried to uh, talk to the auctioneer and, and try to, to uh, avoid him to sell the wine, to withdraw them from the auction. But he wasn't convinced that this guy was listening to him. So Laurent decided to take matters into his own hands. I was not sure he would do it, so I went, I took a plane and I, I went to the auction in New York. The plane took off and Laurent started to mentally prepare for what he was about to do. I didn't know what, what I could expect. Uh, who sold the wines? Who is this auctioneer? I didn't know about this guy before because my plane landed and then the time to, for me to reach the place, uh, it was started uh, already f maybe 15 minutes. Laurent entered the auction room, hoping that he hadn't missed the sale. 
I had at that time a very long hair, so I, it was easy to recognize. And when I get, got into the room, it became silent. And some people, uh, you know, little rumor, and people said, oh, this is Laurent Ponceau, blah, blah. Laurent Ponceau was a bit of a legend in the wine world, and it was unusual to see him at an auction. Most wine sales weren't visited by the winemaker. I don't want to be rude with the people which are buying wines, but they are like teenagers, you know, when they find a toy or something, they, they are so excited. Laurent patiently waited for the auctioneer to announce his wines. When it arrived at the lots of Domaine Ponceau, Laurent stood up. The room was silent. Finally. The auctioneer said at the request of the winery and with the accordance of the owner of the wines, we're going to withdraw the wines from the auction. People in the audience were pissed. These rich folks had flown from the West Coast to New York to buy these wines, and Laurent had stopped the sale. So it went up to the end. At the end, I have been introduced to the, the auctioneer with the owner. But who was this owner? I learned this after the auction that the owner of the wines was Rudy Kiernawan. And so I never met this guy before. Rudy Kernewan, the charming man who had taken the wine world by storm. Laurent had never met Rudy, but he had heard of him. News had traveled from the U.S. to France about the young buyer driving up the prices of wine. I've heard of a guy in California what was supposedly rich and buying for $1 million of wine every month. But now he was finding out that it was this guy who owned the 1982 bottles that Laurent thought weren't real. He wanted to meet him, to do some sleuthing. The next day we had uh, this lunch at Saint-Georges in, uh, in New York, and, uh, and uh, that was fun. <laughs> Detective Laurent sat down opposite Rudy and started sizing him up. After a while, uh, you know, having drunk a first glass of wine, uh, think, oh, okay, now you have to tell me where you found these wines. You must know where you bought them. And suddenly both the auctioneer and Rudy Kernawan uh, had their nose in their plate, uh, mumbling something, we don't know, I buy so many wines, blah, blah. And that was when Laurent realized the truth. And I knew that they knew both that they were selling fake wines. And this is when I decided to start my crusade, at that second. Detective Laurent was now on the case. He knew there was a con going on, that Rudy was a fraudster. But now he had to prove it. I'm going to become his friend. Let him think I will become his friend. And then he may may talk. Over the next few months, Laurent kept up the charade, pretending that he was Rudy's friend, when all the while he was investigating it. I had emails from him, phone calls and things. I went back to U.S., uh, to California, inv- invited him uh, to dinner and things. Rudy had a story. It was the old, hey man, I don't know what happened. I bought these wines from someone else. He claimed that these wines that were meant to be from Laurent's vineyard were actually bought from someone in Indonesia. Rudy handed Laurent a piece of paper with two phone numbers on it. He said these numbers belonged to the man who'd sold him the wine. Saying that I, he bought the wines in uh, Jakarta from a guy named Pak Hendra. And uh, I say I took it for real. I mean, uh, I went back uh, to my office and I tried to call these, these two numbers. 
Laurent punches the numbers in. Ring, 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 ring. The first one goes through. One was an airline with, you know, a, a message recorded saying that this, uh, this number is not in use anymore. So he tries the other one. Same process. Dials up. And the other one was a fax machine, so you, you, I just I could hear the, the sound, you know, the typical sound of a, a fax machine, and that's it. Luckily, Rudy had also given Laurent the name of the original seller. And when I decided to check who can be Pakendra, uh, it's like uh, John Smith in Indonesia. It's a fake name. Rudy had lied. Laurent, at this point, was done with Rudy. He's going to find out the truth himself. I went all over the planet in Asia, first of all, uh, to know, uh, to try to understand who is this guy. Rudy had told everyone he was from a big, rich family. Main importer of uh, Heineken beer in uh, Southeast Asia, blah, blah, blah. Pretty quickly, Laurent worked out. For sure, he was not from this rich family. This rich family didn't exist. Nothing Rudy said turned out to be true. He lied about everything. Who he was, who his family was. He lied about the source of the fake wines. Finally, Laurent flew to America to confront Rudy about his lies. I invited him to dinner. I went back at, I don't know when it was, in 09 probably, uh, in a nice restaurant in uh, Los Angeles. And I told him, now you tell me the truth. You have been lying to me too much. Now tell me the truth. Rudy was caught off guard. He tried to backtrack. He was mumbling and stumbling. He was like a little kid who had got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Oh, I will. I, I, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I made a mistake. I was thinking it was this guy, blah, blah, blah. Again, he was lying, trying to, I mean, uh, we say in French to uh, put back the, the, the fish in the water uh, already dead. You know, that's crazy. From that moment, I was not nice to him anymore. Yeah, this dead fish wasn't fooling Laurent. He wasn't playing games anymore. Laurent is now thinking there's no mystery seller to Rudy. These fake wines must be coming from him. So he started staking out Rudy's house, waiting for him to slip up. But he couldn't risk Rudy recognizing him. First of all, I was wearing dark glasses, you know, like in the movie. And I was renting a, a you know, a very low level car, not, you know, a fancy car he could watch because he was not interested in, 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 in low level cars. So at this point, Laurent is deep in the investigation. He's waiting outside Rudy's house in these dark glasses and a, and a rented Chevy. Waiting for him to go out, following him, trying to know where he's going, where is the place he was faking the wine in, what does he buy when he goes uh, there and there. Laurent had been hot on Rudy's trail for two years. And then one day he gets an email. I got uh, an email from someone and uh, we decided to meet each other in New York, you know, men in black. It was the FBI. It turns out Laurent wasn't the only one investigating Rudy. An American billionaire, Bill Koch, yes, that Bill Koch of the Koch brothers, was also on his trail. Fake bottles of wine had been cropping up all over the wine community and Koch had become convinced Rudy was behind it all. There was a feeling in the old wine world that this guy was probably up to no good. 
Laurent started working with the FBI and with a woman called Maureen Downey, who you heard from at the beginning of this episode. Maureen is the foremost global authority on wine fraud. She'd been friends with Rudy when they were in their early 20s. I met Rudy pretty shortly after I, I started in wine auctions. He was a kid. He, you know, he stood out because he was our age. They used to drink regular wine together. But she started to suspect something when he sent her a box of fine wines for auction but couldn't show her a receipt. How could the man who started off buying $40 bottles of wine suddenly be buying cases of the best and rarest just a couple months later? That's like going from riding a tricycle to driving a a Bugatti. There's stuff that happens in between there. And so she eventually began advising the FBI in their investigation. They spent years and years on this, watching Rudy, tracking his every move. And finally, they were ready to strike. Just like Laurent, they stake out Rudy's house. It's six in the morning. They knock on the door. What they found is coming up after the break. They opened up the door and, you know, Rudy was standing there in his pajamas. The officer was shocked. The amount of wine material and wine-making material that he could see from the front door was unreal. And it got even more unreal as they went into the house. There were just, you know, drawers and drawers of, of labels, and there was a huge printer, and there were all these notes back and forth between his professional printer in Indonesia, you know, about making labels and changes to make, and... There were his lists of things to do, and strewn all over the house were um, bottles in different states of production. And they had space heaters in the, in the bedrooms so that the bedrooms were warmer. But the whole house was like a, a giant wine cellar. Rudy had turned his house into a wine workshop. And this is how it happened. The first thing that he would do is he'd go to one of these big parties where people were drinking all this expensive wine. At the end of the night, when everyone was too drunk to notice, he'd slip a couple of empty bottles into his bag and take them home. And when he's home is when he'd get to work. First, he'd put the bottles into his kitchen sink. He'd soak them in warm water so the labels would slip off. In the meantime, he'd print out rare wine labels which he found on the internet, and baked them in the oven until they looked old and brown. Then he glued them onto the empty bottles, ready to be filled. How did he actually make the wine, though? Well, this is the crazy part. He'd write formulas on the bottles. A little bit of California Pinot here, a little splash of Spanish Rioja a potion to try and mimic the taste of the finest wine. He was like a potion master, mixing his wines together to create magic. Once he'd blended the wines together, he would wipe the formulas off the bottles and head to another room for the next step of the process, branding the corks to make them look like they'd been in a dusty wine cellar for 50 years. He would cork the bottles and for his piece de resistance, dip the tops in little cups of wax to complete the old-timey look. He actually had a note to himself somewhere that I saw that said, blend wine, cork bottle, make labels. 
So he, and he would batch produce this stuff. And actually, Maureen says there's a secret about fake wine that the money men in the wine world won't tell you. Anybody who believes that they can taste for authenticity is pulling your leg. If people could taste for authenticity, then counterfeit wine wouldn't be, you know, a $12 billion a year industry, which it is. You have to laugh here and ask yourself, if you can't even tell a fake wine by tasting it, then why do these big shots spend all of this money on expensive bottles? You see, Rudy sold his wine to the wealthy fools in the Angry Men's Club because he knew the only thing they cared about was drinking something that other people couldn't afford. He understood he could trick dumb rich people out of their money because in the end, it's not really about taste at all. Both Laurent and Marine attended Rudy's trial. His body was there, but his mind was uh, in another place. He had a denial of reality, which was crazy. Just at the end, when he has been declared guilty, uh, his face started to be a little uh, different. But, uh, you know, we, we crossed eyes uh, several times and he was smiling to me. <laughs> I was the guy that put him in jail, but, but he was smiling to me. A, a great denial of reality. The guy committed massive fraud and destroyed the wine auction industry and harmed the the fine wine industry for decades to come. But he's still a human being. And and what I found so sad was that he was the toast of the town, literally, when he was committing all this fraud. And during his trial, I was there every day. There was not one person there to support him. So every morning, I would say hello to him. And every afternoon, I would say goodbye to him. Because there was nobody in there supporting the guy. I I wasn't there to support him, but I could still be a a friendly face. In the end, the judge sent Rudy to prison for 10 years. It was the first wine fraud prosecution in history. But Maureen says there was this one strange thing about the trial. He didn't put up a defense. Every single time his attorney had an opportunity to follow a line of questioning that would have pointed the finger at somebody else, his attorney did an absolute 180 and went in the other direction. Rudy made auction houses a lot of money. Could he have been protecting someone? So, you know, Rudy had hush money. Laurent also believes that Rudy wasn't working alone. So many bottles, so, so many pallets of bottles, you, you, he had to add people working for him, you know. Uh, impossible that he made all these bottles uh, alone in his tiny kitchen. Rudy was released in April of 2021 when this episode was in production. Well, Rudy is now in Jakarta. Uh, it's a week or 10 days he's in Jakarta. Okay, well, I don't know. He, he has only one thing to do is to become uh, no one and stay there. And I don't know what he will do, but the money is there. He's someplace. I hope for him that he will buy a nice house on the seashore and stay there and, and stay silent. But if he wants to start again... He will find me on his route. Hey, good people. Just before we go, don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get them. And not that you're going to do it because we ask, but it helps if you leave us a rating and a review as well. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. Our series editor is Joe Sykes. The executive producer 
is Tom Koenig. Engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a big thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Ella McLeod, Dasha Litsitsina, Chris Skinner, and Arlie Adlington. <laughs>